Vox Quick Hits. I'm Alana Oaken, deputy editor at Vox.com's The Goods. I edit an essay series about the purchases we make, big and small, that affect our lives. This week, we have a piece by Nabil Ayers, a writer, musician, and record label exec, about the best $2,000 he's ever spent. He and his bandmates hired a lawyer to clear them of a drug charge. Here's Nabil. My bandmates and I had left Los Angeles late at night and stopped for some early morning gambling in Las Vegas. We knew we had plenty of time to reach Salt Lake City, and it felt good to get out of our van, which already smelled of day-old Arby's and unshowered men. It was 1995, and we recently left our hometown of Seattle for a six-week tour scheduled to run from October into December. The guys in my band love to smoke pot, so much that they insisted on bringing three and a half ounces, enough to last the entire tour. And rather than buying mediocre weed in every city, they figured they'd be smart and pack dozens of small baggies. Only one baggie would be kept in the van, while the rest sat hidden in a Tupperware container in the trailer that carried our gear, invisible and scentless among dozens of cases and boxes. As a non-smoker, I wasn't thrilled with this plan. But I'd only been in the band for a year, and I didn't feel comfortable speaking up. It's not that I thought my bandmates would have kicked me out. They were friends that I liked and trusted, but I don't think they would have agreed to travel without pot. And all I wanted was to play drums in a different city every night, so I decided not to rock the boat. Two days into our tour, we are stopped at a police roadblock in the middle of the Utah desert. Men wearing military fatigues surrounded our van with dogs and with obvious suspicion. A short conversation took place in which the driver, our singer, revealed to the officer and to the rest of the band that he'd been driving without a license. The next few minutes passed slowly. I tried to project innocence and patience as several officers fired questions through every open door and window. No, we didn't have weapons. Yes, we were in a band. I tried to picture the best-case scenario, where they waved us onward, and I prepared for the worst, where I was stuffed into a jail cell. At that moment, I became acutely aware that I was the only non-white person in the van. And while I tried not to think about how that might affect me differently than my bandmates, I couldn't help but wonder how the white officer's behavior toward me might change once they read my name on my driver's license. Despite our repeated refusal, a thorough police search ultimately took place. We sat breathless, communicating only with our eyes and awaiting the safe sound of the trailer door slamming shut. But we never heard that sound. When an officer told us, No talking. We knew we'd been caught. The charge was felony possession with intent to distribute a controlled substance. And because of the large quantity we carried, it could mean a mandatory prison sentence. The handcuffs felt heavy as they locked onto my wrists, correcting my posture and pulling my hands back toward my heels. I could taste the dry desert and the dark, metallic blood tang of fear. None of us had a criminal record, and luckily, the jail was full. So we were released under the promise that we would return two days later for a hearing in the small town of Fillmore, Utah. I ditched my bandmates and got a ride two and a half hours north to Salt Lake City, where I'd lived during high school. I stayed with my aunt and uncle, who'd planned to see our band that night, but instead hosted me alone. 
I spent most of that night awake, feeling helpless and wanting daylight to appear so I could start calling lawyers. I thought about what my friends from college would think. Two years ago, we'd all been on the same track. Now, they were graduate students and professionals, but I was accused of being a drug dealer. I felt alone and ashamed, and I desperately wished I could erase the past 48 hours. Still, my good luck wasn't lost on me. I'd graduated from high school in Salt Lake City, where many of my friends' parents were attorneys, politicians, and prominent business people. While the other people arrested that day awaited meetings with small-town public defenders, I called everyone I knew to compile a list of the best criminal attorneys in the state. At the top of everyone's list was one name, which always carried the caveat, Oh, you probably wouldn't be able to get him. A friend of mine had once house-sat for his family, so I recognized the name. And when I called my friend to tell her about my situation, she hooked me up with a meeting that afternoon. I imagined a man in his 50s, imposing, with a furrowed brow and a strong stare. The real lawyer was younger, more professorial, in his well-cut suit. There's something here, he told me when I finished my account of the day. It'll be $10,000 to get through the preliminary hearing. That's where I'll contest the search. And if it goes beyond that, we'll have to talk about money again. I agreed on the spot, knowing I could scrape together my $2,000 share and correctly assuming that my bandmates felt the same way. When I wasn't touring in my band, I earned $8 an hour working at a record store. I lived with four roommates in a house with one bathroom and a total rent of $770 per month. I had no savings, but I hadn't felt the slightest reservation about the legal fee. I saw no other option. I would have agreed to $10,000 for myself alone, knowing that I had parents, relatives, and friends who would help me. In the elevator, I thought through the long list of people I knew I could count on. It made me feel safe, secure, and very, very fortunate. We took a seat in cold metal chairs in the brightly lit Fillmore courtroom. Behind us sat four men in orange jumpsuits, each wearing handcuffs. That could have been us, I thought. They must have hit the same roadblock right before we did. If the jail hadn't been full, we would have been in orange jumpsuits locked up for the past two days. The case of... The judge called our names without inflection. He looked around to see who responded, and we sheepishly half-raised our hands, catching his gaze. Stand, please. The prosecutor stood on the opposite side of the room, wearing a suit not nearly as nice as our attorney's. He shuffled some papers and read, Your Honor, the charge is possession of a controlled substance with intent to distribute. When asked by the judge, I named our attorney. The prosecutor flinched. Then he looked at us in disbelief. The judge's tone shifted. I know him well. His voice lifted with approval, and a small grin pulled at his cheeks. Our preliminary hearing date was scheduled for December, soon after the tour ended. And it was brutal. Six weeks driving around America while the days darkened and iced over as fall turned into winter. Our comfortable van had been seized as evidence, so we lived between cheap motels and a freezing rented rider truck. The same model had been used in the Oklahoma City bombing earlier that year, which meant we were pulled over, questioned, and searched daily in the Bible Belt states. Felony charges and prison time hung over our heads. 
And the worst part was that we couldn't tell anyone. We were about to record an album, and we didn't want our label to question our future and pull the plug. We've all seen sexy, exciting court proceedings on TV. Judges bang their gavels as arrogant lawyers overdramatize mundane situations. In real life, court is dry and uneventful. Our preliminary hearing, however, was more like the TV version. My clients were minding their own business, driving to work. They weren't speeding. They weren't doing anything wrong. They were stopped at a roadblock. And that's when they ran into this nightmare in Fillmore. Our attorney held a dramatic pause after accepting the judge's offer to speak on behalf of his clients. Their civil rights were violated. They refused to be searched three times, but these officers kept pushing and ultimately conducted completely illegal and immoral searches of my client's van and personal property. He was on stage for us, for the prosecutor, and for the judge, who imposed the exact punishments he'd predicted. The rightful owners of the pot each received a $300 fine, and the charges against me were dropped completely. My record would be expunged as if the arrest had never happened. We looked at each other in gleeful disbelief, more confident than ever that we'd hired the right guy. We each shook our lawyer's hand, because that's what happened in TV court. Then the prosecutor shook each of our hands, smiling as if he needed us to like him. As we left the courtroom, he and one of the arresting officers approached us with small pads of paper and asked for our autographs. We obliged, playing the part of the 90s Seattle band they'd incorrectly assumed we were. It stung a little, pretending to be famous when we were touring in a van, as an opener, where I made the same amount as I did working at the record store back home. I sometimes wonder what happened to the men in the orange suits. If they'd had the connections, and the money, they might be telling their version of this story. And if I hadn't had the connections and the money, my life might be drastically different. It was the first time I'd experienced privilege of such magnitude, and I was conflicted with feelings of relief, guilt, elation, and sympathy. I tried to justify the outcome. What if they were guilty of real crimes? Or worse, what if they were sentenced to 60 years in prison for something petty? But then I kicked myself for making assumptions. I have no idea why they were arrested, or how their cases turned out. We bid our attorney farewell and promised he'd appear first on the thanks list on our new album, which he did. He promised he'd come see us play in Salt Lake City, which he didn't. I've held on to the stack of paperwork I have from the state of Utah. It includes a letter assuring me that, if I ever get asked whether I was arrested in connection with this incident, the answer is truthfully no. I refer to it as my $2,000 letter, the one that allowed me to keep living my life. 